Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll pick up where we left off, which is in verse 23. And in a few moments, I'll read it. We're really wrapping up a, a section that spans chapters 8 through 10, uh, all dealing with issues of the conscience, of gray areas, of what do we do when Christians disagree on what's right and wrong in a certain moral area. And so it's been building and building and building, and this section really wraps it up, and we'll have a little bit of a summary kind of feel to it. A few years ago, I, I heard a phrase that, that stuck in my head, you know, kind of like a, a song lyric sometimes you'll hear and you just can't get it out of your mind. That's what it was like for me with this phrase, and it was a, a pastor talking about how churches need not just gospel doctrine, but gospel culture. And what he means by that is that, of course, churches need to get the gospel right, that we need to be accurate in our understanding of how somebody comes to God through Christ. We need to have an accurate understanding of the holiness of God, sinfulness of man, substitution of Jesus, our faith in him. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Of course we need to get that right. But too often a church will have that right on paper, and yet the culture of the church, the way people interact with one another, the grace they show or don't show one another um, can sometimes betray the doctrine that they say that they hold to. An example of this we would see in Galatians chapter 2, where if you recall from Galatians chapter 2, uh, Paul confronts Peter, these two early leaders of the church. Uh, Paul confronts Peter because Peter, while saying that, yes, people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, we don't need to add the works of the law that's not how he was acting. Um, he was fellowshipping and in close relationship with Gentile Christians until some Jewish Christians came who didn't think he should be doing that. So he, he pulled back. And he betrayed that unity that on paper he would say they have in Christ. And, and so Paul confronted him. He said, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you add on to the gospel that you say that you believe Churches can do this. We, we can say that, man, we're needy people. We're not perfect. We, we can say that we're resting on what God's word says alone. But then in practice, we add to that and we are overly critical with one another. And we don't have a culture that reflects what we say we believe. How can a church grow in this? How, how can a church grow in a, in a gospel culture a few things. There'd be a, an honesty about our own neediness. R rather than pretending like everything's fine and, and kind of recoiling if somebody's honest about a struggle, we can, can be honest about that and, and walk with one another through difficulties. We can know which doctrines to hold with a, a firm grip and which we can hold loosely, knowing that there's essential things that we must hold to because the Bible's crystal clear. And then there's other things that maybe well-intentioned believers can disagree on. And not everything has to be a fight. Not everything has to be a battle. Not everything has to be like held super rigidly. Churches need to, to know what to hold loosely. We need to avoid the twin errors of legalism and license. License on one hand saying that, yeah, you can trust in Christ and then just live however you want. That would betray gospel doctrine. Because the gospel says... Yes, we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, but one who really comes to Christ and gets a new heart, their life begins to change and reflect that. And a, a license to sin betrays that. 
But there also can be a, a functional legalism where we say, yes, we're saved by Christ alone, but we add all these other conditions for how somebody must live that, that's not spelled out in Scripture, that are maybe issues of conscience. And it's that that 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 have been addressing. It's been addressing freedom and liberty of the believer, but areas in which some Christians might disagree. The particular issue that's come up over and over again is should they eat meat sacrificed to idols? That was a particular challenge in the, in the early church, and we've covered this many times over the last uh, month or so. But it, it opens up a chance to talk about any other area in which we, we start to disagree. We start to disagree, and, and an area that Scripture is not crystal clear. So how do we work through these moral gray areas with one another? That's what this section's been on, and it's essential and having, I think, a gospel culture in a church where show one another grace in areas that we disagree and, and reason through these, these issues. We'll go ahead and read it now. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. The key statement, key command really in this passage that, that all these other points go underneath is this command in verse 31 to live for the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. It says whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think though that that phrase of the glory of God, living for the glory of God, while we affirm is often confusing for Christians, to, to know what that really means in real life. Part of the problem is we, we use that term, glory, in ways that are maybe different than how it's being used here, or at least in kind of a negative way. We, we talk about a film that glorifies violence, right? Or talk about somebody having a glorified sense of their own self-importance, or in a self-directed way, we say, you know, no guts, no glory, or those were the glory days, usually a, a fading athlete, right, looks back on his early days as the glory days. So we see this, and we wonder, what does it mean? Glory, properly defined, is simply public praise, honor, and fame. Glory is public praise, honor, and fame. So what this tells us is that every facet of our life, Christians ought to be able to live for the public praise, honor, and fame of God. 
And I'm going to chase this out a little bit through some passages to help you see it. When we look at Jesus in his incarnation, Jesus who had always existed and yet took on flesh, came down to earth in his incarnation. It says, the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory, his, his worth, his, his might on display in this human body. And, and as it goes on in verse 18, a few verses later, it says, no one has seen God any time. There's God the Father, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Jesus glorified God, glorified the Father because he was God in human flesh, and he revealed, explained, pointed to, helped people to see the greatness of God. And we can do that. And that's what this passage is telling us. Our lives can do that. To run through some other passages that describe this. In Romans chapter 4, uh, in talking about Abraham, it says of Abraham, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So Abraham, whom God had promised that even in his old age, he and his wife were going to have a child, seemed unlikely. And yet he said, I'm going I'm to trust you, God. And it's that trust, trust in what God had promised, that gave glory to God. He says, God, I, I want people to see that you are worthy of this. A little bit different scenario. In Joshua chapter 7, a man named Achan had, had sinned. He, he had taken some things he wasn't supposed to and hidden them. And Joshua confronted him. He says, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. He says, rather than hiding this sin, confess it, bring it to the open. And as you do that, it's giving glory to God. Because it shows that God is more valuable than the sin that you're trying to conceal. It shows that you want to be honest about this. So when we speak honestly and realistically about sin, that, even that glorifies God. Because it shows that he is more valuable and more to be trusted than these desires that we want to follow. Joshua 15.8. Or John 15.8. Sorry. Jesus says, My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As our lives are transformed and changed then glorifies God. It shows his worth, his goodness, his power through what he's doing in your life. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Your good works. The things that, as he saved you by his grace and then he works in your life so that your life honors him, that shows the greatness of God. But also think about the contrast then. In Romans chapter 3, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament talking about sin, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That our sin, rather than glorifying God, our sin speaks against that. It shows that God's not worthy of being followed. We're not reflecting him in our nature like we ought to. I'm going to give an illustration here that maybe will help with this as well. Something we glorify is just simply something that we enjoy. Uh, John Piper, who has written extensively on the glory of God, it's really been a theme throughout his writings, he explains that, I think, helpfully here. He says, if you want to glorify a beautiful painting, 
You don't feel a burden to work to improve it. You simply enjoy it. You love it. You talk about it excitingly to your friends. Right? You get that? You go to a museum and you see a beautiful painting and you're awed by it. That's it's glorifying in itself. You, you don't think, man, you know what this needs is a little improvement. Right? If I could just take out my paintbrush and touch up this work. No, you just enjoy it for what it is. You tell people about it. Or if someone makes a wonderful meal and serves it up before you, how do you glorify the excellence of the meal? Not by putting on your apron and going out to the kitchen to make a few more dishes or add a few spices. No, you glorify a perfect meal by eating a lot and by feeling contented and saying, ah. Right? You guys can do that, right? You think I can, that's my role for eating, right? <laughs> um, but you're saying that's, that's an aspect of glorying in it. You're appreciating it. You're enjoying it. In other words, if it is your duty to glorify something infinitely beautiful and wonderful, there is no burden. It is a pleasure. In fact, when you take from it pleasure, you show that it's a treasure. What does this have to do, though, with this passage on decision-making and moral gray areas? Well, we're going to look through four questions that really come up here that we can ask ourselves. The overarching thing is not, how can I get what I want? What am I free to do? But how can I glorify God in this? And, and as we set aside our own desires for the good of others, that shows that God is worth following here. It shows his glory there. On the other hand, if our driving impulse is just, I want what I want, and I'm going to do it no matter what others say, that's not countercultural. That's just what our desires are. That's just following our own desires. So for each of these, we can really see that it's pointing to the glory of God. So let's look through the specifics then. It's going to give us four questions, I think, that we can ask as we look at this. Four questions to ask in moral gray areas. Areas where Scripture doesn't specifically prohibit or allow something. And so we have to reason through, should I do this or should I not? And the first question is, does it build people up? Look, look at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. All things are lawful was a phrase that we saw earlier in the book. It's likely a phrase that the Corinthians had heard from Paul and sort of distorted to justify anything that they want to do. And so he's writing and clarifying that, yes, all things are lawful and that if it's not prohibited by Scripture, it's fine. And yet, you think through, will people be edified by this? Will they be built up? Edify just simply means to be, to be built up. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, tells us in a similar vein, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So driven by love for people makes me ask the question, not just am I free to do this, but will it build them up? I'm going to give you an example. I want you to bear with me for a moment on this. Well, 20 years ago, as a 19-year-old college student, I spent 10 weeks one summer on a, like a mission project with 30 other college students from the Northwest. And at the end of these 10 weeks, as we were wrapping up, uh, a few of us guys decided a really good way to wrap this up would be to go get some cigars and smoke cigars and talk about the summer. Now, bear with me for a moment. That was maybe not the best thing to, to do. But in our mind, we're thinking, oh, this, would be, this would be great. Uh, somebody had asked, well, is it, is it okay or not? And 
somebody else brought up, well, Charles Spurgeon said it was okay. And, and so we're like, we're like, okay. And, and as we're planning this, though, there was one guy on the trip who, who was really, like, not in favor. And as I was asking him about it, he talked about how before he came to Christ, which was really recent, just the last year or two before this trip, he had spent half of high school um, high, smoking pot, just all day long. And, and he came to Christ and was pulled out of that. And, and now in his mind, apart from whether you know, smoking a cigar would be right or wrong, is just loaded with this past experience. And he, he asked the question, like, does it, does it edify, like us doing this? Does it edify? And to my shame, I just hadn't even considered that. Um, hadn't even really listened to that concern. That would be prioritizing not just freedom, but what builds up, what builds up other believers. So, does it build people up? But then it comes back to the issue of freedom again. And so it's good to ask the question, is it indeed an area of freedom? There's a danger in these chapters chapters 8, 9, and 10, that, that we can take it and just restrict, restrict, restrict areas of legitimate freedom and then look on other brothers and sisters in Christ with criticism when they don't line up to us in areas of conscience. And throughout this passage, though, it's trying to help us see the opposite, that there's tremendous areas of freedom and we need to be careful about not condemning and judging one another that if people come up with different decisions in moral gray areas. And so... Notice the freedom this described here. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Remember, the issue here in the meat market is that much of the meat would have been sacrificed to an idol, brought to the market to be sold. And we saw last time that believers shouldn't participate in what's happening with idol worship and going to these idolatrous temples. But he's making the point that if that's happened and it's just at the meat market and you're just buying it to eat, it's just meat. It's, it's, it's not loaded with that. And you can freely eat. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking for conscience sake. It says if you get it and eat it and you want to, if somebody invites you to their home, you can go. There's, there's freedom. There's freedom. And so we'll come back to that in just a moment. But, but don't misinterpret this so that rather than making it something of moral decision making on your part and preferring others, you're criticizing others and evaluating them, not, not on clear things of Scripture, but on issues of conscience that, that you think they should follow as well. That creates not a gospel culture, but a legalistic culture. So we ask, is it indeed an area of freedom? We'll come back to this as well. Third, will it hinder the gospel? Will it hinder the gospel? Verse 28 says, But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols. Do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. Changes gears and then I think comes back to it in verse 32. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks. This is verse 32 now. Or to the church of God. But just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. It says it's not just, am I free to do this or not? Is my conscience clear or not? But non-Christians who are observing this, are they going to be confused if we partake? Is it going to communicate something contrary to the gospel that we're trying to help them to see? Even if it's their own thinking that's maybe off in this. 
says, I should prioritize that because I want to see them come to Christ. I want to see them uh, be saved. So, so we have to ask the question, will this hinder the gospel? But then there's another question, I think, embedded in this. Verses 29 and 30. Can I give thanks to God for it? Can I give thanks to God for it? I, I think there was kind of a parenthesis here. In verses 28 and the first part of 29, because right before this, it's talking about freedom. You know, eat anything you want. If the unbeliever invites you and you want to go, you can go. But then verse 28, but if someone says this is meat sacrifice to idols, you know, do not do this. But then it picks back up with this theme of freedom in verse 29 in the middle. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? can ask the question of ourselves when we're trying to decide, can I do this with a clear conscience? Is ask the question, can I, can I thank God for this? You know, if there's a movie and you're thinking, man, I don't know, is this okay to watch or not? One thing to ask yourself is after watching it, can I, can I thank God for this experience? Can I say thank you for this entertainment? Thank you for this story? Thank you for this? Or is it like, I'm going to do this, but I kind of just need to keep God locked in the closet, and then afterwards maybe I'll think about the Lord? Or, you know, a, a dating couple can consider after spending time together and considering, okay, what, what, what's the line? There's some clear things that are out of bounds from Scripture when it comes to physical intimacy that's reserved for marriage alone. But, but where should the line be otherwise? A question to ask is, can I, can I thank God? After spending this time together and the way we're interacting, can I, can I say, God, thank you for this? And, and if not, that's maybe a clear indication that our conscience is not clear in it. And we ought to either hold off until our conscience is more clear or it's an indication we just should not do that thing. But I want you to notice again, though, this tone of freedom here. If I can thank God for it, if my conscience is clear, verse 30, he says, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? It's this tone we want to maintain in a body that if it's a a moral gray area that's an issue of conscience that Scripture's not clear on, of not slandering other brothers and sisters who make different decisions, but recognizing it's an area of freedom. All right, well, I want to summarize all this with a flow chart that maybe helps this, uh, I don't know, gives a little meat to it, and we'll give some examples along the way. And so this is really summarizing not just what we see here, but throughout these chapters, 8, 9, and 10. And so... I'll have it up here on the screen, but it's also on your, your notes page. If you don't typically follow along with the notes, there's some notes there that should have been on your seat. And it has it there, maybe in a form that's a little easier to see. We start with this question, does the Bible allow it? Does the Bible allow it? Is it maybe not a gray area, but it's a black and white area The Scripture does not allow? And then our decision should be, no, don't do it, don't do it. And that takes a commitment of heart that we know that if Scripture speaks to it, we won't do it. So 1 Corinthians has had some very clear things there. Chapters 5 and 6 had some crystal clear things when it came to uh, sexual integrity, sexual immorality, that it said are, are out of bounds. And if you miss those messages, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. Things like uh, sexual intimacy outside the context of marriage, uh, adultery, even uh, homosexual acts, all these things were clearly prohibited. And so the question there, does the Bible allow it? If it's no, then we should not do it. We, we should act in obedience and say, God, I want to glorify you in this by obeying you in this, not to save me, but because I am saved and out of gratefulness. So does the Bible allow it? If the answer is no, then we shouldn't do it. If the answer is yes, 
It's not prohibited by Scripture. We still have some more work to do. We ask the question, does my conscience allow it? Does my conscience allow it? Even if I can't find a particular passage here in Scripture, but I just have an uneasy conscience, and, and, and to do it, I, I feel guilty. I'm not sure if I should or not. Don't do it. Don't do it. Romans 14 makes this point. And when we went through 1 Corinthians 8, we spent quite a bit of time here. Romans 14, verse 14 says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And it's talking in the context about food. Um, but to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. And then a few verses later in verse 23, it says, He who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. And so the point there is, if, if your conscience is uneasy and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to do it anyways because all my friends are, because I don't want to be the awkward one out, I'm just going to do it, then what you're saying is, God, I, I feel like this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. Even if your conscience is misinformed there, the Bible says, no, don't do it. Don't do it. You, you need to maintain a clear conscience. But even if our conscience is clear, there's more questions to ask if it's a gray area. Because that gets us into some areas of freedom. I'm going to give you three more questions that hopefully summarize what we've seen in these chapters. What's the effect on other Christians? What's the effect on other Christians? It's told us to value love more, more than knowledge. And the knowledge there is like knowledge of kind of a, a conscience thing, like where your conscience says, no, I know, I know this is okay, so I think I should be able to do it. But love says, if I've got other brothers and sisters in Christ that they disagree, and not just that they disagree, but my example can somehow lead them to violate their own conscience, put them in a pattern of sin that, that I maybe wouldn't get into, but they might. An example we had used on that was with, uh, with drinking alcohol, and that, that might be something that is a, a gray area in, in terms of not drunkenness, but, but in moderation. And yet, even if your conscience is clear on that, and I understand there's maybe some debates there within our body too, but if your conscience is clear, and yet you know brother or sister you're hanging out with, their conscience is not, or perhaps they have a pattern of alcoholism in the past, and your action might have a negative effect on them, it says we should say no to that. Not, even if it's an area of freedom, we should say no uh, if I think it's going to have a negative effect on a brother or sister in Christ. Second question. What's the effect on non-Christians? Our other point told us to value love more than just knowledge of kind of our freedom. This one says to value the gospel more than just our own rights rather than just thinking, what can I get away with? But if I engage in this area of freedom... How will it affect non-Christians who are watching that and maybe will be less likely to listen to me if I try to talk to them about Christ? Will it hinder somehow my ability to share Christ with them? I'm going to give you an example of this. Um, again, more than 20 years ago, a friend in the college group who uh, professed faith in Christ and uh, he had a girlfriend that lived out of the city and some weekends she would come and, and I found out that she would come and she would, she would stay with him in his apartment. And I talked to him about it, and he said, well, you know, we're not, we're not having sex. That's, we know that that's wrong, but she's just, you know, sleeping in here on the couch. And I talked to him about a number of things there where I thought that's at, at best unwise, if not more than that. But another reason why 
he's putting himself in a dangerous situation, a situation of temptation. We talked through a lot of those things. He was unpersuaded. And, and then I asked him, though, said, your apartment is surrounded by people who don't know Christ. And if they see her staying the night, what are they going to assume? Are they going to assume that you're walking in purity or that, that you're not? And his answer was, I don't, I don't care what they think of me. I don't care. I don't care what they think of me. He's, he's missing this. Okay? I, I would have hoped he would have been persuaded just in the danger he's putting himself in there. But, but even if not, you'd hope that this point would help him to see that if it's going to close the door to sharing the gospel with non-Christians because they're going to view him as a hypocrite, then he should not do it. And then the last question, what's the effect on my spiritual life? Spiritual health is more important than freedom. Will I be built up by this? Is it profitable? Is it edifying? Chapter 8 had told us to ask questions like, is it controlling? Will it control me? Will it deaden my affection for Christ? Will it make it harder to walk in obedience? If it has a negative effect on my spiritual life, even if I think it might be an area of freedom, I should say no. I should say no. Now, probably a hundred different areas that we could ask questions on in this. Uh, love to keep talking on it. If, if, you, if you have questions on this and you're thinking, okay, how does it apply to this situation? Um, I'd love to keep talking. E- each week in our bulletin, in our notes, there's discussion questions that you can do kind of for your own reflection, maybe a small group, maybe around the dinner table with your family. There's some follow-up questions that maybe help you to think through some specific examples. Maybe take some time this week and, and do that. And if you wonder, how does this play out in real life? Man, that's what the body is for, is to help us work through these things together. So let's pray.